Hello and welcome to Asia In-Depth. I'm Michelle Flor-Cruz. As health officials all over the world wrestle to contain the outbreak of coronavirus COVID-19, the impact of the virus on the global economy is already being felt. The outbreak has already taken a toll on global stock markets and continues to disrupt supply chains, trade, investment, and more, putting pressure on many industries. What will be the ultimate impact of the coronavirus on the global economy, short-term and longer-term? And how will it affect China's economic trajectory? In this episode, Asia Society Policy Institute President Kevin Rudd and Rhodium Group founding partner Daniel Rosen look at these questions during a week that has seen some of the largest percentage drops on global markets in decades. Daniel Rosen begins the conversation. China has, Beijing has, a credibility problem, right? It has a credibility problem because in the early stage of this virus, the political environment was the problem. (laughs) It disincentivized capable scientists, doctors, from ringing the alarm bell loud enough, right, to impel um, an adequately uh, stood up response to what was soon to be the crisis we now uh, know. Uh, Learning quickly from that mistake. Before turning them into Lei Feng. uh, Before turning them into Lei Feng, of course, and making Lei Feng is a revolutionary hero hero of the Chinese Communist Party. Indeed. Back to you. And so this this creates a credibility problem that to some extent has been resolved in terms of the virology and epidemiology. There's been, and the World Health Organization's job, Bruce Alward's job, has been to certify and and validate that the information we're getting out of China now about transmission rates, mortality rates, all these sorts of things is credible and reliable information. At the same time, though, we still, on the economic side out of Beijing, are still continuing to see the, the wrong sorts of responses to data and credibility. Um, I, I can confirm firsthand that officials and business people in some parts of the country are being told to go into their offices and run their air conditioners over the weekend to make it look as though electricity data um, is good and pointing to a recovery. That is precisely what you don't want to be doing right now. So. Um, I doubt that's coming from the top necessarily. It's officials in the context of a system where folks are just nervous about what it'll mean not to, you know, make their numbers in terms of demonstrating how things are going and to be able to tell a good story, right? We all want to tell a good story, and you're right. I didn't cheer the room up here, but I'm actually, I, I think, on the right side of where we need to be here, which is being brutally, painfully honest about the extent of the challenges that we're grappling with. That is the only entry point to doing something about this. And WHO is doing the best job anyone's doing right now in helping to sort out what's reliable and what's not reliable in terms of the virology here. Let me ask you uh, a broad question first, which is to what extent is it uh, productive uh, to simply see the economic uh, impact of the coronavirus as a problem on the supply side? Um, of the global economy, or to what extent does it, pardon the pun, now mutate in the direction of a demand-side problem as well? Uh, Boy, I I don't think it's helpful at this point to see it as either a a supply-side shock or a demand-side shock. It's absolutely both. We're beyond... Um, it's beyond the classical, we've got a supply chain problem, therefore we can't supply. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, a- 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 absolutely, right? And the question is critical because it 
it's the it's the starting point to what the policy response <laughs> needs to be, right? You deal, question. <laughs> you, you, if, if you are principally dealing with a supply side phenomenon, uh, firms unable to meet demand levels, right, um, or in overcapacity or what have you, then there are, is a certain set of um, steps you can take to deal with that. If it's a demand side problem of collapse, you know, people basically staying home. Uh, and um, canceling you know, all of their discretionary activity and even pulling back on some of their non-discretionary activity. Uh, in some, some parts of the world, in China, for example, you know, going to a lower-calorie diet for a month, right, as, which might not be a bad thing if you're concerned about diabetes, by the way. But, um, yeah, no, it's definitely on both sides of the, the ledger. I, I don't see any way to isolate it on one side or the other. Yeah, looking at it, it strikes me as... Um as clinically difficult to identify in classical economic terms because it's unfolding on both sides of the ledger. Um, and I think there is um, somewhat of a, um, a uh, premature analysis that this is primarily a challenge on the supply side. You see that in some of the literature. But going to the essence of it um, and the nature of disruption, up front you have obviously uh, uh, manufacturing in China hit because you've got large concentrations of people in one place and we had a whole series of lockdowns effectively occurring during the month of February with varying analyses of the level of return to normality. Uh, CICC reporting 60% of um, coal um, consumption being back to normal, 70% of steel production being back to normal. Um, return to work rate in terms of uh, workers themselves somewhere in the vicinity of 60 to 70 percent depending on whose data you believe. Mm -hmm. um, um, but um, then you go to the services sector uh, which is by its definition uh, almost uh, very people intensive particularly in terms of the uh, interchange with multiple people of which, of course, the airline industry, the tourism services industry, the education services industry, you just mentioned uh, classes at uh, Columbia, is that right, uh, before, um, uh, brings about its own obvious uh, uh, levels of risk. And so you see the permutations of this across the entire fabric of an economy, but if there is an underlying thread in the analysis, it's uh, strip it all the way many of these businesses have an emerging cash flow problem. Um, that is, um, if you've been selling uh, airline tickets um, and you're a, uh, a mainstream operator or you're a, um, a second string operator in a country or you're running a string of hotels around the world, you begin to have a problem in terms of uh, the, um, the cash flow necessary to sustain the business. Take that logic to its next step uh, who then is my banker uh, and who is going to extend me the lines of credit to see over this period of uncertainty, go back to our earlier conversation, how long will the uncertainty be? Um, and then thirdly, uh, if the direction in China has been uh, to financial institutions to effectively forbear uh, people's lines of credit uh, for a period of six months, uh, that's fine uh, in the golden age of socialism, um, leaving aside the overall robustness uh, financially of the Chinese system. Um, the, then we have a double question here, which is what happens 
with providing, um, as it were, that level of financial guarantee to firms uh, outside of China, including in the United States, including the airlines, who will probably be the upfront most exposed industries uh, at this stage, who provides the uh, continuing lines of credit uh, beyond uh, normal tolerance levels, and who then under, underpins that as the lender of last re re resort in terms of the Fed and its counterpart institutions around the world. So the reason for the lengthy nature of the question is to explore, as it were, uh, the, uh, the chain of events here, um, uh, from the crisis uh, into firms which are maximally exposed into their cash flow, into their banks and into the central authorities. So this very much falls on the policy side of the equation. Mm. Uh, you touched on this in your remarks before. To what extent can the Chinese sustain their current, as it were, directive, given the underlying, shall we say, problems uh, within the Chinese financial system prior to the crisis? Mm -hmm. And to what extent uh, is this now possible for other countries around the world, particularly if you're non-American and you can't just print money? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well... Boy, um, there's a lot there to think about, and we got we got to figure this out. Um, I, we don't definitely have answers to how this is going to fit together, but here's a few thoughts. In the immediate term, in the short term, um, China, as Washington in 2008, can make extraordinary interventions in order to maintain the solvency of the system and avoid a cascade of panicky failures um, of activity all through the system, especially for those industries which are on the front lines of taking the, the hit to their cash flow and hence their ability to keep servicing their debt, run-on effects of that to the banks that rely on them repaying their debt in order to keep operating in the marketplace um, as they do. And you mentioned the industries that are um, uh, you know, most obvious uh, um, uh, top of the list, um, everything in discretionary travel, transport where people get together, education, entertainment, restaurants, hotels, services, all those sorts um, of things. China has already uh, declared essentially a six-month forbearance holiday uh, for borrowers. And Will basically include Chinese private banks as well? Oh, yes. Yeah, like, very like much Min, so. Like Minsheng Yinhang and those sort of people. Absolutely, right? So 100% in Hubei province and nationwide for small and medium-sized businesses have been told their banks will work something out with them. The details of that has not been you know, fully developed out, but you will not be uh, put into default. You will not be in default. You will not go into bankruptcy through June, essentially. And if you're a foreign bank operating in China? Uh, I know it's a small question in relative terms. I think uh, I'd be curious to, to know perhaps what others in the room think about that, but the thought of a foreign bank choosing to uh, disregard that guidance and uh, uh, issue uh, you know, bankruptcy notice to its borrowers in China is pretty hard for me to believe any would do that. As with Chinese banks, it's one thing to tell them, you're going to do this for our guys out there in the real economy because they need it, but then who's going to make them whole? Who's going to come in and provide them with a TARP or some kind of uh, program to ensure their solvency? That burden now lies on Beijing to come up with an answer to that. And that answer will need to be provided to foreign institutions which are providing credit in China um, as well. But 
the bigger concern I have is this, that you can do that for the short term and uh, people without any choice in the matter will, of course, you know, embrace that um, political guidance that they should not just take whatever they have left and leave the marketplace entirely. But for the medium term, what is the reason to be cheerful? Um, as David Byrne's been saying it lately. What, what is the reason why we should stay in the game and look for buying opportunities, right? In a sense, all crises have within them the solution to the crisis, which is that prices fall. And when they do, at some point, value is created for investors, for those that had chose to, chosen to be all cash or gold or something like that and are on the sidelines presently. I, uh, you know, I would ask about the better Asian airlines that were in really good shape coming into this, if that such a thing existed. Is this the chance they have to roll up all those weak, over-levered regional you know, air carriers? Uh, they might be willing to do that. And they might be willing to work out a deal with financiers to provide the wherewithal for them to do that, for a Qantas or something like that, to buy eight you know, Indonesian, Philippine, Thai, maybe even a Chinese regional airline. The only trick is it only makes sense for them to do so if they know that on the, in the medium term, on the other side of the crisis, there's going to be a reform agenda that will give them the opportunity to use the assets if they stay in the game and do this. And that is the uncertainty that Dashboard is all about. It's looking for some telltale sign that we're not just trying to tread water for the moment, but we're recognizing that long-term Chinese potential to contribute to the global economy relies on that same package of reform and opening ideas that made China so effective as a developing country for the past 40 years, but lately has been under a cloud of uncertainty prior to virus. We're taking a short break here to tell you about the China Dashboard, an ongoing project from Asia Society Policy Institute and Rhodium Group that tracks China's economic reform program in 10 key categories, including trade, innovation, environment, and more. The Dashboard, which is updated quarterly, uses objective data to illuminate and distill the state of reforms in easy-to-understand takeaways and visualizations. To learn more about the project and see the most recent Winter 2020 update, check out chinadashboard.asiasociety.org. Now, back to Kevin Rudd and Daniel Rosen. If you go to the um, question, what we've been talking about so far is, uh, how do we save firms now uh, who are maximally exposed to the crisis? Uh, let's um, say that uh, we, let's assume that we can do that in China uh, and question mark whether we can do that abroad on the essential question of emerging uh, cash flow problems and all the moral hazard, the economic term moral hazard, which arises from that about which firms are uh, legitimately entitled to such support as opposed to those which would cash in on um, any such uh, government program simply because it existed. So leave that to one side. Let's just assume that that can be done, though the degree of difficulty as it was in 08-09 was high. Um, on the question of um, the China's design of its own stimulus-based response to filling the growth gap uh, longer term, uh, let's uh, 
discuss that for a, a minute. Because uh, I agree with you. Um, you, you simply have to observe the Chinese economy from space to work out we've got negative growth in the first quarter of 2020. Um, and if uh, the Chinese authorities produce positive growth numbers for the first quarter of 2020, they create for themselves a legitimacy problem. Um, there is no way, given what we know objectively uh, to be the handles on act economic activity through electricity consumption, notwithstanding what people are doing with their air conditioners, uh, through to um, observations from space, but most importantly, the transport density graphs we've all seen in terms of air traffic density, road traffic density, congestion uh, maps, etc. So uh, let's assume we've got a negative uh, quarter first up, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's significantly negative. Um, second quarter, if the first quarter is that negative, if uh, the WHO's analysis um, confirmation of the Chinese trajectory is accurate and that it has peaked, um, uh, we should see a level of recovery in the second quarter in terms of China's uh, growth numbers, a level. I'll leave it as vague as that. Um, but you start doing the maths on this in order to, uh, for China to uh, double the size of GDP in the 10 years that it promised between 2010 and 2020, which is a core part of the political legitimacy program of the party in Xi Jinping, which is to say this is phase one of the China dream. Uh, this is the execution of what I undertook to the Chinese people uh, as uh, the down payment on the great renaissance of the Chinese people. Um, the mathematics, as I understand it, prior to the crisis, was that we needed a growth rate of around 5.6% um, in 2020 in order to bring that about, um, in order to complete that doubling of GDP. Um, then the question arises, if you've got a significantly negative first quarter, a, a, a wobbly second quarter, there's a good term for you in economics, a wobbly quarter in the second quarter, uh, it, and it becomes, I think, mathematically impossible, whatever stimulus strategy you employ, uh, to pull 5.6 uh, out of the air mm -hmm. based on activity in, in the third and fourth quarter for the simple reason that, as you said, consumption foregone in the services sector is not simply made up uh, later on. But your thoughts on that? So... Uh, and how would you design the strategy, the stimulus strategy? Yeah, I mean, well, for starters, I would now more than ever stop talking about a political objective like doubling GDP by 2020. Exactly. How is that rooted in any kind of empirical scientific analysis of the nation's welfare, right? No, and it's, it's pure politics. By it's the way, pure it disappeared I mean, from the language last week for the first time. It, well, uh, yeah, it wasn't in the uh, PBOC statement, I guess. Right? Not PBOC, uh, uh, Politburo statement uh, coming out of that meeting. Poor ombudsman. Which may, may be a little bit encouraging, right? But, um, but those kinds of goals, right, they're, they're purely political. But the reason why they're, they've hung around as long as they have is that politics can be useful if what people need is a shared sense of sort of like, what are we all aiming here? We need a sense of direction. And sometimes... A sense of direction is more, you know, the, a good can be better than perfect, right? And all that sort of thing, right? But right now, in this moment, these kind of arbitrary political objectives rooted in conditions a decade ago and reinforced in conditions 
a year ago or six months ago, there needs to be a demonstration by leaders that they understand that that's not the goal for right now, right? And the thing about these crises, in a normal period, if we weren't in a crisis, right, if this was not, if the virus weren't happening at all, there would normally in China be hundreds of thousands of business failures each quarter. That is normal. That's okay. There are in the United States as well, right? Companies that are not doing well, are not, which means they're not generating enough profit to justify the, their continuing uh, effort, everyone would be better off quitting that job and going to some company where they had better prospects of getting a raise tomorrow. Hmm rather than just hanging in there, right? So that normal call process... the invisible hand telling you to become invisible. The, 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 the uh, insertion of politics in trying to program who stays in the market, who falls out of the market, is deeply concerning from an economic perspective. And it's been deeply concerning for years. One of our graphics in the competition policy section, I think, Laura of the dashboard is new business starts and new business closures in China each quarter, right? And most problematic is that the business closures data has now been suppressed for the past six months. So we don't know, adding more uncertainty as if businesses closing at a time like this should be seen as abnormal or unhealthy or bad, right? How are the good companies that stay in the market tomorrow that Qantas example, or you know, make it uh, you know China Merchants Bank, or whichever Chinese banks were more prudent yesterday, and hence have an opportunity tomorrow. How are they to justify all their prudence, all their not chasing yield during the salad days, if they're not given the opportunity because somebody else fails and leaves the market to expand their business, their better practices, doing what they can do to make China a more productive economy tomorrow, and so. My great concern now in this window of forbearance, which may be ne necessary in, right in the teeth of a free fall of a crisis, how do you ensure that that doesn't mean that everybody, good, bad, ugly, and otherwise, gets to stay in the market, building up their debt levels for another six months without cleaning some space out here to create room for productive, healthy, sustainable growth going forward? That same problem and question will be asked in every nation uh, around the world now that we have a truly global crisis um, on our hands as well. That's an important data point um, which I was unaware of, um, which uh, Dan just mentioned, which is the non-disclosure of um, Chinese um, business failures for the last six months. Another reason to get you a copy of the dashboard um, and uh, go online and propagate to your heart's content. What uh, do you think they will do, Dan, in terms of stimulus, the Chinese uh, government? Uh, I think everybody right now is um, stimulating in various ways, fiscal and monetary. Um, we had U.S. monetary stimulus last week with a rate cut. Uh, that's probably going to lead to a Chinese rate cut as well to reduce borrowing costs for, for borrowers as they have to roll over credit during this forbearance period. They still have that rate that technically is building up in their, in their, you know, uh, in their debt service uh, uh, payment obligations. Um, the concern that I think many analysts have is that um, if everybody is quarantined and stuck at home, then it doesn't matter how much extra spending money you put on their credit card. <laughs> they can't go out and spend it. And so our traditional notions around stimulus, counter-cyclical stimulus at a time like this, um, 
aren't going to have as much oomph as the question about demand earlier on. As they should. Yeah, you can't really stoke demand when everybody's not allowed to leave their building, right? And, you know, we have two employees, we have two colleagues that have been stuck not just in China, but in their buildings since January. One in Xi'an, one in Hangzhou. They cannot leave their building because they don't have local residence permits because they were there visiting their families. And the terrified guards at the front door won't let them back in the building if they leave. So they cannot go out and spend anything they happen to have in their pocket. So we can't just look to the playbook from yesterday in terms of how we stimulate through this. It's not gonna, certainly not going to just be about stimulus or maybe even mostly about stimulus. It's going to be about forbearance. It's going to be about standby arrangements that uh, address the solvency of good companies so that they don't go out of business right now and shut down entirely and also keep them ready when the virus is managed, and it will be, and we'll, we'll get through this ultimately, right? Will we then have the most productive investors, companies, able to buy into conditions in order to create the next cycle of positive activity going forward? And to do so at that time with better return on investment than the kind of poor politicized return on investment that we've seen in China, in our view, over the past decade, which at some point was useful for a six-month period in 2009 and then ceased to be. And so we have the same question coming up in the second half of 2020 in my mind. What kind of finance system is China going to have in order to get out of this pothole, this incredibly deep pothole? If they do it right, it still seems to me, and I know I sound like I'm, you know, greatest hits of the 1990s here, there is so much potential for China's economy in the context of reform to unleash decades more of excellent, high-quality growth and activity, right? Um, I would be, if, if it takes this crisis to unleash that potential, then history books will reflect that there was at least a silver lining on to how this plays and through. That's where we you could ask hard questions about American policy, too, by the way, and whether this will help reset some of our craziness uh, about how we're running our, uh, our economy as well. On the China question, though, um, you're right to point to the absolute dilemma and the opportunity of what now presents itself to Chinese economic policymakers. Um, you either go inwards and become more protectionist because your political impulses take you in that direction, given what you've been through, um, uh, or uh, those who are liberal economic reformers uh, within the system are able to convince the... the uh, the uh, political power brokers of the system, that in fact this presents a unique opportunity uh, to um, throw open uh, the economy even further. Because if you ask one simple barometer test, and you've partly pointed at this, Dan, um, let's just say of China's principal airlines, um, not uh, the national carrier, not even China Eastern, not even China Southern, not even uh, Hainan, which is semi-private, in receivership. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, but let's say Shanghai Airlines or something like that. Um, let's assume they're going through difficulties at the moment. I don't know whether they are or not. Uh, would any uh, foreign company buy a company like that, given that you know that the domestic airline industry uh, will be subject to internal regulation of, um, shall we say, the distribution of seats and market by, by, by direct or indirect means by the Chinese regulators? That's kind of the dilemma you face. Mm -hmm. If you would have a genuine open skies policy domestically, where may the best provider win? Well, that's a separate story. Yeah. 
But that's where the rubber hits the road in the example. You touched on uh, the good old US of A, where we are, and let's call it the curious aspects of American political leadership at present. Um, the, um, what I find puzzling as an external observer um, is the absence of uh, a decision to pull together uh, the principal economies rapidly uh, through the G20, uh, both in dealing with the public health policy dimensions of this uh, and the public finance uh, dimensions of this, which then flow to the questions that we referred to before on how do we fund uh, cash flow problems in, quote, good firms, um, and uh, what do we do in terms of lenders of last resort who are already, uh, shall we say, uh, overextended through the events of a decade ago. Now, I'm just puzzled as an external observer. We, all, we seem to have got to a stage 10 years after the global financial crisis where the international political community is not seeing this global pandemic, despite its obvious impact on markets. Someone should check where Wall Street's up to right now. Um, down six already. Um, is um, uh, is uh, uh, the uncertainty in markets and uncertainty in public uh, opinion, basic public fear about the virus as well, is permeating everything. And the analogy is the one you drew before. We were like that between the Lehman's collapse in September of 08 and the London G20 summit of March of 09, mm. which put a floor under the collapse. And then when the international financial community saw that there was concerted policy action on aggregate stimulus, monetary policy intervention, non-resort to protectionism, plus regulatory changes to avoid an immediate repeat of the crisis, including financial stress testing of institutions mm. to handle a subsequent crisis. Uh, it was only then that we could track the line to recovery. I do not see a parallel action or call for such action at present. Is that because of the nature of political leadership today or is it because of uh, the intrinsically different nature of the problem? Um, what do you think? <laughs> no, I, I, I'm just puzzled. I'm seriously yeah. puzzled. I mean, there's, there's something I seem to be missing here. Well, look, I the mean, President of the United States back then, whoever happened to have the rotating chair of the G20 would have said, uh, what the expletive, um, let's, we need to get together. Yeah. This is bigger than any of us. And that, right. to give him great credit, George <coughs> Bush, um, uh, George Jr., took that decision uh, to convene that gathering uh, in first one of November of 08, when we were all staring through a glass dimly, not knowing where this would land. It was consummated the following March in Obama's presidency and with uh, jo uh, Gordon Brown in the chair. But I'm just puzzled yeah. by this. It seems to be we're seeing the precise outworking of what we've feared for the last couple of years, which is the growth of racism, parochialism, nationalism, and us each believing that somehow we can each do it ourselves. Um, and that the problem lies with whoever has given this problem, given us this problem from next door. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, the other side of the literature from the past five years, right? That we will, um, in part because of this nativism, this parochialism, right, make these transnational stresses more likely, right, and more costly to address as they unfold. Climate migrations due to um, uh, local strife in so many places, 
environmental pressures, global climate, of course, and now pandemic, uh, uh, pandemic uh, pathogens and disease, right? Uh, it's not as though there haven't been a, most of the political science community talking about these things are going to happen. And when they do, we are going to need a collective response, right? Um, that um, uh, these things cannot be handled plurilaterally, let alone unilaterally. Here we are, and unfortunately we're putting it to the test. It's not the first time that the United States has um, aspired to a nativist sort of Fortress America coming away from the world due to our frustration with involvement in the world, post-World War I comes to mind, right? Only to find that we're dragged back into it for want of the vision to sustain our leadership mm. and our participation in the international system. I'm not a political scientist. I'm a mere economist who comes bearing metrics to try to gauge what conditions on the ground in China are and what they mean for the world. But it certainly seems to me that an inevitable outcome of what we're going through now, and we're still in the very early phase of it here in the United States, is going to be a reminder that we don't have a choice but to remain engaged as a partner in the world, not just on our terms, but on terms that are, you know, um, engageable. And the core for point being well. there for the United States to realize it is its national interest to so do it, to so engage. It is not a philanthropic question. Yep. of optional U.S. foreign policy. <laughs> and not just, uh, not just interest, but existential interest, ultimately, as well. Thank you for listening to Asia In-Depth. You can listen to the other episodes of the Asia In-Depth podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and YouTube. Check out our show page at asiasociety.org slash podcast, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Asia Society. I'm Michelle Fleur-Cruz. See you next time.